Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. For over 20 years now, Tom Sharpling has hosted The Best Show. If you've never heard of it till now, yes, that is the actual name of the show. It aired on the New York public radio station WFMU until around 2013. Now it's a podcast. The format hasn't really changed much since it began. Tom plays music, he interviews folks, takes calls from listeners, hangs up on listeners, and once in a while, his buddy John Worster calls. John does characters. Sometimes he'll play a guy called Darren from work. Sometimes it's the Gorch who says that he is the real-life inspiration for the Fonz, or the legendary Philly Boy Roy. They're from Philly, you dummy! The, fi- the Sopranos does not take place in Philly. What Sopranos are you watching? The one on HBO? Well, that's the one I'm watching, too! Are you that stupid? that you don't realize that that show takes place in New Jersey. So you're trying to tell me that The Sopranos, the show about the singing group from Philly, takes place in New Jersey? You're nuts! The more you listen to the best show, the more you get a sense of its rhythm. You recognize the callers, pick favorites, you start to pick up on Tom's sense of humor, and you find joy in pretty much every time he tells a caller to get off my phone. It makes The Best Show a rewarding and wholly unique experience. It's kind of the radio comedy version of the world-building that people love so much in Game of Thrones or Star Wars or whatever. Tom is more than just the host of The Best Show, though. He's also a comedy writer who's worked on shows like Monk, What We Do in the Shadows, and Divorce on HBO. As a voice actor... He's appeared on the Cartoon Network shows Steven Universe and Adventure Time. And earlier this summer, Tom became an author. He wrote a memoir called It Never Ends. In it, Tom talks about his traumatic childhood growing up in New Jersey, about his struggles with mental illness, and about how he managed, despite all that, to become a success in both comedy and podcasting. Also, It features his take on why Billy Joel stinks. Those are his words, not mine. It Never Ends is hilarious and harrowing and brilliantly written. I'm so glad to get to talk with Tom about it. But before we get into the interview, I do want to give a heads up to listeners. There is going to be some very serious talk about mental illness, uh, including Tom's experiences with ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, So if that is a sensitive subject for you, we we wanted to let you know. Anyway, all that being said, let's get right into it. My interview with the great Tom Sharpley. Tom Sharpling, welcome back to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Uh, We uh, we have known each other for 20 years-ish. Yeah. And I did not know that your surname is not Sharpling, at least the surname that's on your... ID cards. Mm-hmm. It's not the biggest revelation in the book, but it's the one that surprised me the most. Yeah, it seems to rattle a few people. <laughs> Did you? 
I want to talk about why you picked a new name and the symbolic meaning of that and so on and so forth. But like for right now, I want to ask, did you choose not really to tell people that it was a performing name? I know some people knew, but like. Yeah, some people knew, but it was, it just was a thing. It, it, it's a thing that started when I was 18 and then it grew and grew and then. I, I had it more than I didn't have it. So it just made sense. And that's how everybody knew me anyway. It helped me through, it helped me navigate my own self out of situations uh, in terms of just kind of trying to be able to cope with where I was at in life and move forward. It was necessary. And then it just kind of became, just kind of worked. And it was just, it was just there. And and I just, that's how everybody knew me. So it wasn't a big deal, but it was a big deal to, to me simultaneously. I didn't care and I cared. Why did you choose a name that wasn't your birth name in the first place? Oh, because I was uh, recovering from some pretty severe uh, mental uh, issues and bouts of stuff with that that was pretty extreme to where it, it just made uh, things hard to to kind of carry that baggage so I just wanted a chance to not carry that baggage and that was that was a fast track to not carrying that baggage to just kind of get to be somebody else like a variant on myself so it was it was crucial to me actually and it helped a lot and i'm glad i did it do you remember when you decided to do it yeah I was like 18 ish 18 around there uh 18 19 uh and it started because i was just getting mail at uh at home and doing kind of music things tape trading and things like that and ordering records and I kind of just wanted stuff to be differentiated from my father who had the same, same name. So just kind of was a little bit of a, little bit of a break from that. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, that's where it started. And then I started a fanzine and kept it for the fanzine and then it just grew from there. Did you want to be a comedy writer or a radio host? Ultimately, I did want to be on radio, but I didn't have the access to it yet. I mean, I always loved radio and, but the, but again, radio was either huge FM stations in New York for me, or it was, uh, like left of the dial college stuff. And that's for students. That's, those were not. And I was not a student at any of these schools, so it wasn't an option. And the only station that was different than both of those two places was WFMU, which was ostensibly a college station. It was a part of a school called Uppsala that went out of business. And thankfully, the um, the people running the station bought the license before the school went out because that would have probably been one of the, um, that would have been one of the bigger ticket items that the school could have just sold off to whatever Christian broadcasting 
because they just buy those things up. They were buying at that point in the early nineties, they would just snap those, those, that was like gold to just have stations and have spots on the dial. Um, so thankfully WFMU kept existing and was a station kind of staffed by, not by students, nobody, I, I think they would have a few slots for Uppsala college students on there, just almost like as a gesture, but the, but the, the purpose of the station was driven by non-students and these were adults running that, uh, running the station and, and doing the shows. So they were, um, it's that, that was literally the only station and I got on that station. That was a minor miracle. I want to talk about the stuff that you went through as a kid and a teenager in a minute, but um, I was happy to read your description of feeling at home when you sat down behind a mic for the first time that maybe it was something that really was something that you could create from. It really, writing this book and looking back and kind of charting out the story and kind of sorting through, figuring out like what's the order of things and how did this lead to this, which led to that and that led to that. It really dawned on me that that was such a powerful moment. Like that is... Some I got some kind of voice when I did that, and it was kind of immediate, and I was immediately hooked on it. It was funny because it almost felt like the writing it in the book. It was like it was the corniest moment in the whole thing because it's like it's that's like movie stuff when somebody suddenly gets their power. Usually, things like that are not as cut and dried as that where it's suddenly like this is my thing and i am doing great at it right away i know this is for me and in retrospect i guess it makes sense when you think of um the way people talk about getting on stage when they say like as soon as i got up there i knew i was born to live on a stage and i knew i was definitely not born to live on a stage that i learned that uh very quickly but I did feel in the microphone, I was like, yeah, this is it. This is my, this is my place. And it really was special. And I didn't want to stop doing it. When you're being funny behind a microphone it is a very unusual circumstance. It is one of the only situations where you are performing funniness mm -hmm. without feedback. Um, oh, it's. And getting like kind of that felt like something there was like a taming of the silence in a way where it was like you could say the funniest thing you've ever said in your life and the response you get is pure silence. And it I've seen people come on the best show, just the funniest people. And this is before like pre pre podcast era there was still a novelty for most people getting in front of a microphone and if they were ever on the radio they were on for 10 minutes on a, a promotional thing on a mainstream station and they never really would 
settle down or do a, a longer form conversation or longer form comedy. And I would see those people just get like rattled by it. And then they kind of press because it's just like, I got to maybe to get this, this laughter, I need to just start. I just got to start steamrolling people and I just got to do go faster and just get, and it's like, no, you actually have to just kind of, just kind of lean, let it just happen. And it's just, it's really, there's just this sense of the silence is so scary at first. But then when I got a hold of it, it was my favorite part of the show. And my favorite part of the show still is kind of just riding silence in, in the middle of a conversation. If I'm, if I'm, or, or just a monologue or whatever you want to call it, if I'm just talking, I love just letting the silence just sit there and it spooks people, but it's like, no, that's my friend. The silence is my friend <laughs> and the silence can be your friend too. If you just trust the silence, it's not a uh, silence. Isn't necessarily bad. But it's scary. I mean, you know what that's like. Those first moments when you say something and then it's just like, I got nothing back. Like nothing. Because the people who get thrown the most were stage performers. They were used to just immediate response. I said a funny thing. I hear laughter. And then they, they, in their mind, they're just like, oh, no, I'm bombing. It's like, no, you're not. There's just nobody here to laugh. You've got to trust somebody out there thinks it's funny. We've got so much more with Tom Sharpling coming up. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Running a company is hard, but over 6 million people found a way to make it easier, thanks to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, e-commerce, manufacturing, inventory management, you name it, Odoo's got it. Each app is user-friendly, intuitive, and fully integrated. For a free trial of Odoo, go to odoo.com slash bullseye. Good question. That's a really good question. It's a great question. This is free therapy. Thank you for asking me that. God, that's such a good question. That's an interesting question. But what Fresh Air interviews are really about are the interesting answers. Listen and subscribe to Fresh Air from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Tom Sharpling. Tom is a comedy writer. He's also the host of The Best Show, a radio show and podcast that's been going for over two decades. Earlier this year, Tom wrote his first book. It's a memoir called It Never Ends. The book is heartbreaking and funny and features, among other things, one of the most brutal Billy Joel takedowns in the history of music criticism. Let's get back into our interview. Once you told me I think maybe it was you on the air somewhere, mm -hmm. but I feel like it was in conversation, perhaps because your show is so intimate. But um, you told me about after September 11th, driving to the, sitting in the parking lot of a Trader Joe's and eating an entire Trader Joe's cheesecake. Yeah, on September 12th. 
Yeah. That's how I spent that's how I spent <laughs> the day after 9-11 in New Jersey, where if you looked at the sky, you saw all the smoke. If you drove to WFMU, uh, which was right on the on the water on the Jersey City, uh, right on the Hudson, that it's just the smoke and the smell of burning metal and that, uh, yeah, my way of coping was to just go to Trader Joe's and eat an entire cheesecake on the spot. <laughs> but yeah, but, but, like, but the, the beauty reason... is I did say that on the radio, okay. but you... But that's that's a huge compliment to me. Yeah. Well, I and I mean it. And like the reason it struck me and the reason it's stuck in my mind, other than it being a funny and moving story, is simply that it was the rare instance that I had heard you describe your feelings mm-hmm. directly. Okay. <laughs> And I had trusted you to be sincere. I mean, I think I trusted you to be sincere when you were nice to me 20 years ago. And I was. And Yeah. But... One of the things, Jesse, <laughs> the whole show is sincere. <laughs> I might put on a little, little play for people here and there and maybe heighten things and goof around in the name of entertainment. But I, it's me every week. I'm still the same me. All I, all I, I figure with the show, I'm just going to do all of it. Sometimes I want to fib. Sometimes <laughs> I want to be deathly serious. Sometimes I want to be super encouraging and positive. Sometimes I want to be crabby. That's me bringing all of my head to the thing and if you do it for as long as i have done it you're going to get all of that at one point or another and it's not my responsibility to i don't have to suddenly make a have play a sound effect when it's just like the tom is joking now like (laughs) what a bummer that would be isn't it more fun to parse through the stuff and go like i wonder if he was joking now that's the best i wish why don't I have a me, Jesse? <laughs> I think you do. I think you just described I I am, that you do. So I'm doing this for myself. Yeah. Actually, I have been. Oh, no. <laughs> Another whole truth just hit me. I'm my own biggest fan. I'm doing the show for myself. Well, I knew that already. I knew I was doing the show for myself. That became very clear. For the first two years of the show when no one liked it, it was clear I was doing the show for a very small amount of people, and that was the that was the time to get out. Where it's like, if I if it was based on audience reaction, if that was going to dictate whether I kept at it or not, I would have been gone because it wasn't there. And one thing that does get lost on people is when it was called the best show on WFMU, it was meant to um kind of tease the other shows on WFMU. It's a, it was a joke of a title because I was the Tom, lowest person on the ladder. You're talking to a guy. Up, this show yes, used to be called The Sound I, of Young I America. Know, I know. <laughs> yes. Where you're like, Motown, huh? <laughs> yeah, I can do. I guess I'm the next in line for that. Yeah. Barry Gordy, Jesse Thorne. I used to get an angry email a week, Tom. <laughs> yes, but but that there's a there the the context for it over time has 
that has gotten lost a little bit is that it was, it was such a dumb joke to call it the best show because it was like, who does he think he is saying? He, like, I've been on this station for 15 years. I have the most popular show on the station. It's like, this guy says he's doing the best show on the station. And there were DJs who were not happy with that title. But then it was double, it was not even doubly, exponentially funnier that no one liked the show. And I was calling it that. That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's such a perversely funny joke to me. <clears throat> but then over time, people are like, well, maybe it is the best show. Well, I don't think it's the best show. I like it a lot, but it's not, maybe it's not the best. People debate it. It's like you give people a chance to debate a thing if you make a bold statement. You you get that. I promised you that we would talk a little bit about your childhood and adolescence. So I, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Your mother was seriously ill through most of your childhood. When were you aware that she was sick? I got around eight is when, uh, yeah, like eight. <clears throat> she has, and still has, she's, she's still hanging in there. Um, just a blood disorder that she's had to deal with her whole, her whole adult life. And yeah, that was just one of those things where suddenly everything changes when that happens, then Life is just different that now there's a lot of time in the hospital, a lot of time, uh, doctor's offices, her getting surgeries, procedures, just every kind of thing to try to figure this out. And it was also something that was a very, um, unconventional thing that they, they just weren't answers for. So there was always this sense of what is this, how can, how can she get help? Uh, so there was, it was, there was just a frustrating unknown quality to all of it too. Not just like, well, it's, it's this disease and this is how this disease gets treated. The doctors were trying to straight up figure out what is this? We don't know what it is. How come this is happening? Let's try this. That didn't do anything. So we'll try that. That didn't do anything. We got a few results here. They'll go talk to another doctor and see what they think about that. It was just a giant ongoing um just journey through the unknown and um yeah but that was one of those things that it just it kind of feels like it's just like yeah childhood's kind of over now even though you're not an adult yet i could feel the responsibility of of being a part of my family showed up and it's just like well what can i do to just help. And it's just way too early for a kid to start carrying that stuff. Even the, I think I was always kind of came off like I could handle things and it came off like a, like a, like, Oh, you're like a little adult, but it's like kids just aren't little adults. No matter what, how they can present that they just aren't. They, they, their capacity to truly handle huge things like that is very low. They will bear whatever that is in some weird way at some other point. It's just going to, it's going to leave a mark, I guess is what it, and one, some kind of thing. It's just a part kids are just, kids are very strong and they're also just very, 
very fragile also at the same time. Because you don't know what it is. And there's also, there is nothing for you as a child to do about it. And that must have been an awful feeling. Like not just knowing that the person who's supposed to take care of you can't take care of you, but knowing that even if you assume the mantle of responsibility, you know, which is absurd, but you don't necessarily know that, that there's like nothing you can do works. Like it's like, you know. Oh, you're, you're a kid. You can't, you can't change things or fix things. But when you're in that, <clears throat> when you're in that black and white thinking of kids, it's like you can be good or you can be not good or you be bad. And just like, it's like, I want to be good. I want to help. And it's just, you just start doing that. And then it just becomes just like a pattern. And then that pattern becomes kind of like a compulsion to just always be trying to let me fix it. I can need, I, I can, I know I can, if I try a little harder, maybe I can fix it. Like we got, I did okay. Maybe the difference between things getting better or things not getting better is uh, my effort, the, the, the intensity of my effort. And that was just, yeah, that became, um, yeah, that's when those patterns got set. And those patterns are still, that is still who I am. Um, I'm just, you know, it's finally understanding the things after a long, long time, just realizing just what, what has been motivating things. And that's, I mean, I always knew it started there, but I didn't understand how one thing connected to the other and, and just created behaviors. Did you have any mental illness in your family? Not that I know of, no. There was never the, uh, like the uncle or whatever that, no, nobody was, it was, there was that was pretty uncharted territory for my family when I kind of started to fall apart. How old were you when you started to fall apart? Yeah, like 13, I guess, is when it really, I remember it was seeing a psychiatrist when I was 13, and it just wasn't, yeah, that's that's kind of when it started. And, I mean, it's hard enough just being a, just being a kid is hard enough. Like, that just, if you're, if you're a well-adjusted child, that's just a, that's such a huge, huge thing to navigate. But then when you've, when you've got some, some issues, it's just, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it seems like it's impossible. Yeah. It just felt, it felt, it felt, there always felt a slight, a sense of just inevitable doom, collapse, failure. Like it just felt, it just did not feel like it was going to work. Like, it's just, when does it stop working? I mean, you had no evidence that something that you could do would stave off collapse and disaster. Sure, but uh, uh, but you just want to try, and that's... Uh, it's sort of a negative reinforcement loop, because when you try, you you don't have the power to fix things, so... Well, you, of course, absolutely. And you can realize, you can either realize that or 
think that maybe the maybe you were one percent maybe you were just one more push away from making the difference and it just that I, I did not know the the former on that at all i just it's like my family was not a uh like we were all it was just self-employed working hard-working people just multi- multiple generations of just small business just and that was all that was all effort like you it also instilled in me was just like the effort is what makes the difference if you have a small business that's what makes the difference it's just like if you're going to phone it in your business is going to suffer so it's just about outworking things and i think that's a part of what that was was just the idea like i'll just outwork it but i didn't know that didn't work what uh led your folks to send you to a psychiatrist in the first place um i'm sure i was pretty sad i i don't remember really the first thing specifically yeah i don't know i don't remember I don't remember the first thing. I just, there was just a general, there was just a cloud of sadness hanging over a lot of my, uh, a lot of my life. So I'm sure that there was some, I'm sure it was that, but I specifically do not remember. Did you talk to your parents about that part of your life when you were working on the book? Um, I talked to my mom about certain things about hospitalizations and, and, uh, treatments and things um not extensively i wasn't showing her chapters and things like that but i would i would talk to her you know when i had questions specific questions about things and just to get her angle on things um yeah it was it was a uh it's always felt like it was enough of a bird it felt like it's it's just like I don't want to reburden her with a lot of this stuff is what it felt like, honestly, because it was hard on everybody and I did get through it. So she's been through enough. There's not a whole lot for me to be gained by relitigating things to her. It's like, I got through it. You, I, maybe it wasn't perfect, but I stayed alive, got to the other side of it. I'm still here. I just didn't want her to feel bad about any part of it because um, she truly, my parents both did, they did everything they could. This was uncharted territory for them too. So, We'll finish up with Tom Sharpling in just a minute. After the break, Tom tells us why C-3PO, the gold robot from Star Wars, is fiction's worst character of all time. It's Bullseye. <laughs> I like C-3PO. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. 
Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Prepare yourself for the greatest pro wrestling podcast spectacular known as Tights and Fights. A fact-dropping audio showcase that helps you understand the world of pro wrestling with a lot of love and no toxic masculinity. Featuring host Danielle Radford. Time to kick butt and chew gum, and I'm all out of butts. Lindsay Cow. I'm a brutal Brit, and my fists were made to punch and hit. And Hal Loblin. I was doing the voiceover this whole time. Hear us talk about pro wrestling's greatest triumphs and failures. And make fun of its weekly absurdities. On the Perfect Wrestling Podcast. Tights and fights. Every Saturday, Saturday, Saturday on Maximum Fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer and podcast host Tom Sharpling. His new memoir is called It Never Ends. Many years ago, Carrie Fisher was on my show, and she had written a book about her experiences with electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, Mm -hmm. which she had received for uh depression yeah I, I read i read her book it was um it was interesting it was it was the truly the opposite of my experience so yeah you 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 received ect as a kid or as a teen yeah not as and she was well into adulthood when she started with it yeah and it was also a different era in it as well mine was mid 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 eighties and that was still pretty uh I don't even know what the right way to say it was. The technology has advanced to the point where it's so much more precise and controlled and targeted and specific. It's basically it's basically an outpatient procedure for people now. They go, they get hooked up, they get it, they go home and sleep. Maybe they have some some memory, uh, short-term memory problems here and there. Uh, they come back. That's usually how it works now. But for me, it was, I'm in a hospital for six weeks. I'm getting this regularly. It feels like they are, I could taste the burning. It felt like getting hit by a car and most so much of my memory never came back. So it was that it could not have been more to mine was much closer to somebody that I've, I, uh, is an important figure to me is Lou Reed because it, he went through the same, same thing I, I had, I would eventually go through his was in the late fifties. So he, or, or he got it. Late fifties, early sixties. I, mean, I don't know. Late, I think his was late fifties, like fifty-eight, fifty-nine, and his was just barbaric. Like it was just straight up. They're just electrocuting your head. Um, then it went out of fashion for for a while, and then it kind of came back in the eighties, late seventies, early eighties. Came back. To, to to be uh, something was being utilized again. And then, so I got a version that wasn't as bad as his, but wasn't anything like what the current day version of it is. 
And it was, it was rough. I mean, it hurt. I remember it was like, I remember it felt like I was poured, being poured into the bed in the hospital after they did that. Just like, it was just brutal. And, you know, look, I have a lot of feelings about it. I still am very, there's parts of me that are still just extremely mad about it. But I didn't have any choice. It just was, it was that or either end up on a ton of medication that would have just shut my body down. Uh, so it was a pretty extreme, was pretty extreme circumstances. So it was kind of like a, I don't want to say like a Hail Mary play, but it was, it was a bold move to try to try to fix a, a really bad situation. And it did work. I mean, I did, I got through, I bear the scars of it, but I stayed alive. So it worked and I have to, I have to accept and acknowledge that because that's undeniable the other versions, I don't think I would still be alive now if I had ended up on, you know, Thorazine or whatever heavy duty drugs they would have put me on. Um, I don't, I don't think I would be here now. I think I, my body would have, would have, uh, would not have lasted. You describe the pain and the physical experience of the therapy in the book. But it seems like the biggest effect that you describe is, you know, you describe your sadness about losing so much of your memory that you lost, that you just don't know mm -hmm. things about yourself that other people do. Oh, yeah. No, it feels like. It's like I can, um, I can look at photos. I could look at a yearbook. I could go dig through memories and things like that. It's always, I, I just, it, there, it feels like it's just, I, I think I describe it in the book this way, but it feels like it's, there's plexiglass keeping me from it. I don't actually have a connection to those things. I can see that it had they happened but they are not my memories they are they're memories that i would have to pretend to i mean the whole thing with a memory is that you you remember it and you hold on to it over time i would be like reconstituting things that clearly did happen at a point and trying to claim them as memories and it just i don't have an honest uh connection to these things they might as well have happened to somebody else and that's how so much of um that's how so much of childhood stuff is i would just be like see pictures i'd be like oh okay i guess we went to a lake house or whatever just see these things i, I don't remember any of it but it clearly happened, but, or once in a while, I'll just get this like ghost of a thing. 
and but there's nothing to hold on to but there's just like a whisper of a memory and it's just but I, there's nothing concrete about any of it and that's like at at best teachers in school it's like you could if you could name teachers from school right you like grade school teachers names other Ms. students and stuff Ms. Cornell, Ms. McClonis, see, I can't, I, Ms. Denny. I I I it's just those are a struggle for me. Those are gone and I could pull them back together and I could study them. I would just be regurgitating facts, but they're not actual memories. Yeah. It's a funny book too. I just need to say <laughs> it's mostly funny. It really has funny stories in it. I promise you, it's a good time. Were you scared to write the book, not just because you were, to, in order to do it, you would have to talk about things that you had not really talked about publicly, but also because it would mean having to spend a lot of time directly engaging the absence of your memory? Oh, yeah, all of that. The memory part was, it's embarrassing. It's, uh, there's, a, there's an embarrassment that comes with having things that everybody has that not having them. There's something weird about it. And, it's, and then if it feels odd, then it feels weird. Then it feels embarrassing. Then it feels like shame. And then it feels like guilt. The, the range of emotions and it just turns and then eventually it would, I would turn it on myself somehow. And it's just somehow it's a bad thing I did. And that's what it felt like. It's like, there's a part of my life that was a bad thing. So I'd rather just run from it. I'd rather just move past it. Why do I have to, it happened to me once. Why does it have to keep, why do I have to keep this thing alive? Let me just move past it. Let me get, let me just live a normal life like everybody else and, and, and do things and enjoy things rather than beat this drum of, of the thing that happened to me and the things that happened. I just, I'd rather not do that. I just would rather take a stab at, 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 uh, being like everybody else. There's not a lot of the second person in your book. You don't address the reader directly or tell the reader what to do very much. Um, at the end of the book, you do allow yourself a couple paragraphs of saying, I went through these things, I survived them and came out the other side. You say it pretty plainly. And you say that you can... Uh, put down what you're carrying and keep walking. It reinforced my wondering, which was, to what extent is Tom trying to talk himself into this? <laughs> to what extent is Tom giving himself advice that he's allowed to put down the baggage and keep walking? Oh, the whole book is me talking to myself. The whole book. I didn't want to write a book. I never set out to write a book about writing a book, but... It kind of, not in not in a uh, meta way. Me, the concept of like meta stuff for me turned sour a while ago, and it just it feels like I don't know. I'm just I feel like I just want to choose 
the uh, the opposite of that now. So when it kind of evolved into this thing where it's like the act of me being ready to tell the story is the story of the book. And when I got to the end of it, I could kind of, yeah, kind of like un, unburden a little bit and just be like, it just kind of is. And um, I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to accept my own advice. Tom, I have one last question for, for you, which is that you have asserted that C-3PO, the gold robot from Star Wars, is yes. the worst character in all fiction. Yeah, yeah. That's... What, what is your justification f- for that? Um, it's annoying. He's unfunny. Um, he does nothing to help any of the stories he's a nuisance and he lets his his pettiness truly take them off course it's a miracle that the death star got destroyed with that a messing everything up thank god his pal r2d2 could you imagine the things r2d2 saying if we could get a translator on that (laughs) he's probably just saying well, you shut the f- up. <laughs> like, like, is just like, when this guy gonna shut up? <laughs> like, that's what R2D2's saying the whole time. I mean, it says a whole lot that the best two characters in Star Wars are a giant chimpanzee or whatever he is and a robot that goes bleep and bloop. The only ones, the only ones that I want to hang out with now. Don't say anything I can understand. Any of the other ones are talking about oh, the Federation and we got to do, it's like, can we get the bleeping robe, the bleep bloop robot back again? I like, I like that he goes bleep, 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 bleep. And I don't know what that means. Or the one that goes. It's like, it's very telling that at this point in my life, those are the only characters I can handle. <laughs> Well, Tom, uh, I'm always uh, grateful to get to talk to you. And thanks for coming on Bullseye again. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Jesse. I appreciate it. Tom Sharpling. It Never Ends is the name of his memoir. It's touching and very funny. Thank you to Tom for coming into our studio to do this interview and for being vaccinated so we could talk safely. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, and from our offices in the beautiful Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, overlooking MacArthur Park, uh, where recently in our neighborhood, there have been a bunch of neo-fascists coming out on the weekends to act like jerks. And... uh, I just want to say that in our neighborhood, in our city, and at our company, uh, we think that trans rights are human rights, and we stand with and care about our transgender colleagues and family members and friends and neighbors. 
The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. They've got a brand new record in store that is great. You can also keep up with Bullseye on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all of those places, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 